Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we welcome two important guests on the front lines of the Roe v. Wade decision, Amanda Allen with the Lawyering Project and Robin Marty, Operations Director of the West Alabama Women's Health Center on working around abortion bans in red states. In a hospital, they or someone they love might end up investigated and in jail. So that's what keeps us going. We hear from factcheck.org's managing editor, Lori Robertson, and we end with a bright idea, improving everyday lives. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. It's a monumental reversal of a constitutional right. The U.S. Supreme Court voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. A situation Surgeon General Murphy calls a major step backward for public health. There are only 20 states in the District of Columbia right now where abortion is legal and likely to be protected. The other states have so-called trigger bans and other restrictions that have been activated are in the works. Joining us to discuss this situation is Amanda Allen. She's senior counsel and the director of The Lawyering Project, which is a nonprofit that uses the law to improve abortion access and to uphold the rights and dignity of people seeking and providing abortion care. Robin Marty is also with us. She is the director of operations at the West Alabama Women's Center, Inc. in Tuscaloosa. It has had to stop performing all abortions as a result of the Supreme Court decision. Well, Robin and Amanda, thank you both for joining us. And Robin, let's start with questions for you. Uh, you're the author of the handbook for a post-Roe America. Tell us what service your clinic is still offering. And at this point, what options do Alabama women have? And we really hate to ask this question, but is the so-called back alley abortion what some will need to turn to? First of all, thank you for having me on. Um, So the clinic is actually still open. We closed for about a week and a half. Um, We waited a few days after the decision came down because we still had patients that had come in for their first day appointment, which is an appointment in Alabama that requires them to have counseling and ultrasound. And then they have to leave for at least 48 hours before they can return to have an abortion. So we had more than 100 patients who had already had this first day and now no longer were able to get an abortion in our state. So we decided that it was still our responsibility to help them figure out where to access an abortion, how to make sure that they had the resources to get there. Um, And then we closed because we wanted to make it very clear to the state that we were going to abide by all of their new laws. And we reopened last Monday as a reproductive health care center. We are expanding some services that we already did provide, such as birth control, um, HIV care, some prenatal care, and then we're adding in more things as well. Um, We've started an IUD program. We're working on pay what you can emergency contraception. We're definitely working more on making sure people have prenatal care and uh, pregnancy confirmation so they are able to access Medicaid in our state. And we'll keep doing that essentially until we run out of money or we run out of patients. Well, Robin, are you concerned that it might become a crime to even give this kind of advice to patients on how and where they can access abortion? And how, how is that affecting the family planning advice that you provide or that of other healthcare providers in the state? 
Yeah, it's very difficult. Um, we chose to continue providing the referrals for the patients that we had already established relationships with because we felt that because we'd already begun medical care in those cases, that we had basically both a medical reason and a moral reason to make sure that they were able to finish that care and to not do that would be some form of medical malpractice. We were informed that that could be seen by our attorney general as a conspiracy but we went ahead with it. And I specifically actually told my staff, my staff is primarily black women, single mothers, um, head of households for their family. And I specifically told the staff that I would fire them if they would not make these referrals. And I did that because I wanted to make sure that if something did happen, that all of the responsibility would be solely on me in case the attorney general did decide to do something. Once we reopened, we are no longer providing referrals. We cannot tell people even as much as what is the next legal state right now. We are only allowed to provide completely public information such as a website like INeedAnA.org where a person can then put in their information and get that for themselves. Uh, Amanda, your organization says the decision is a national disgrace that will leave an indelible stain on our democracy. The Lorian Project focuses on expanding access to abortion services through telehealth and medication-assisted technology. Tell us what advice you can share with Robin and her colleagues. Well, there are a lot of legal uncertainties right now, and that's why you're seeing clinics close, um, clinics move operations from a state where abortion is banned to a state where abortion is now legal, and a lot of fear around just the basic things like information sharing, providing referrals, helping patients get out of states like Alabama to get a, to receive abortion care where it's legal. A lot of those questions are, are lingering, and they're huge because as, as Robin notes, you know, these are real people whose freedom might be on the line if a, a rogue prosecutor or other sort of enforcement official decides to go after someone for providing a referral or mm -hmm. providing transportation assistance. And so we are we are in a real legal gray area in some ways. Um, but what is clear is that the other side is not going to stop at returning this issue to the state. We have already seen the playbook from the National Right to Life. They want to go after people who help people who need abortions cross state lines. They want to go after people who just share information or advertise for abortion services in states where it's legal. And so this is not going to end at just every state gets to decide for itself. That was always a disingenuous line from Alito's opinion. It was always going to lead to the state versus state, these battles about what, what charges can be brought sort of for this cross state care that, that we're going to be seeing more and more of. Well, Amanda, the governor of South Dakota uh, has said that her state will not only prosecute doctors and presumably others like nurse midwives who perform abortions, but also work to restrict women's access to abortion pills. Uh, we're based in Connecticut, which recently passed a law shielding uh, physicians who prescribe the pills through telehealth to patients in other states, including the states that restrict abortion. What's your view on this? Uh, does telehealth medication abortion present one possible option for women in states like where Robin lives? It could, but it does pose a pretty big risk to the provider who is prescribing the drugs. And that's because the way telehealth laws work, the law of where the patient is located is what controls. And so it doesn't matter if the provider is based in a state like Connecticut or New York or California, because 
the state where the patient is located is really the law that governs. And so South Dakota, if it has a total ban on abortion, that would include medication abortion. And so they could go after that provider. Now, what states like Connecticut are doing um, with the law you mentioned is trying to provide an extra layer of protection for that. So saying we won't cooperate in investigations for abortions that would have been legal if performed here in our state. So we won't um, we won't commit any state resources to um, to furthering any of those investigations, or we won't comply with an extradition request. But these are untested bills right now. These are untested legal strategies, and um, I think the, the the bottom line is that there's really no zero risk strategy right now. Robin, the the pro-life Mississippi attorney general says as a result of the decision, the government should strive to pass, and I quote, laws that empower women, uh, including an overhaul of uh, child support, child care. And the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops pledged to redouble efforts to support women facing unexpected or difficult pregnancies and to support young parents. Are, Are these realistic options? They are, but they have always been realistic options. They have always been issues and policies that could have passed and that these very people have held up. The reality is that they have been holding these things hostage, promising that they would somehow release them and back them and support them if they got their real goal, which was to end legal abortion. And they always could have done this and they never did. And even in Texas, where we've seen for almost a year now what it looks like when there is almost no abortion access, they have had 10 months now in order to try and put any of these things in place and still haven't. The idea that we would now suddenly believe them is like Charlie Brown trying to kick the football. Hmm. It's never going to happen. And Mark, if I might just add, there is no plan for this. Um, The National Right to Life could have put out a playbook that addressed all of these social support systems that you referenced. It could have addressed health insurance, making sure there's childcare available, making sure that school lunches are paid for, making sure that paid leave is available. Their playbook addressed how to triple down on these abortion bans and how to basically make sure that abortion is as difficult to get in any state in this country. And so that's their playbook. Um, I also need to add the fact that people don't completely understand that these are states that are banning abortion. They're also the same states that have yet to actually expand Medicaid. Um, Alabama has not expanded Medicaid, refuses to expand Medicaid. And when our lawmakers said, okay, so you are making abortion completely illegal, can we at least expand Medicaid now? The lawmakers came back and said, actually, we still think it's too expensive. It's too expensive to give people health care, but you can still force them to give birth against their will. And the Venn diagram between states with the highest maternal mortality rates and abortion bans is a complete circle. As the Biden administration seems to be casting about to take steps that it can take in response to the ruling, I understand that they've directed the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, CMS, uh, to take every legally available step to protect family planning care. While uh, Medicaid may not get the attention of uh, leaders in a state, most hospitals live or die by Medicare and, and Medicare rules. Do you think that there's anything that CMS can do in its zone as the largest uh, healthcare policy setting group to help? I, I mean, I want to be helpful, but no. Yeah. 
Um, The reality is that we live in a country right now where states get to opt out of anything that they choose to opt out of. The point is that the states have all the power at this moment. The one thing that Biden administration offered that could actually help us down here is expansion of birth control access and emergency contraceptive access. But that's not going to happen down here because our states have already put a stranglehold over who gets Title X funding. And so, for instance, in Alabama, Title X funding only goes to county health departments. It cannot go to any other clinic. It goes specifically to county health departments. We have patients who are waiting three, four months to try to get in to get an implant or an IUD because those are the most expensive forms. And that's the only place where they can get it. And unsurprisingly, they ended up at our clinic pregnant instead. You know, the the decision has had such a profound impact all across the country. Maybe the both of you could just talk to us about the people who work in your organizations and how how they're coping and how you're dealing with it as leaders. What are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, I think for my organization, you know, everyone is is really devastated and it takes a toll, right? I mean, yeah. this work it's not only long hours, but um, but it's emotionally difficult. Um, you know, you're working directly with abortion providers or abortion funds who are who are actually helping pay for people to to get the care they need book their bus tickets, you know, get them on a plane. And, and it's, it's very, it can be very overwhelming. Our focus has been on just doubling down on our efforts to help providers, to help the patients they serve. And that's what keeps me going. And I think that's what keeps everyone in in this movement going is knowing that there are people out there who need our help and um, that accessing an abortion is, is literally life changing. For us, it's almost like mourning a death. My career has been about assuming that Roe would be overturned. My staff, and it was still a shock when it happened. We know that we have three months, essentially, three months to get established, to get grants, to find funding, to be able to stay open, not just for all of these projects, but because we know that no matter how much money and how many resources you give pregnant people, there are some who are not going to be able to leave the state. And those people are going to turn to medication, hopefully, to terminate their own pregnancy. And they are going to be afraid that they're going to be arrested for it. And so we have to be there because we will be a safe place for them to come to in order to get that follow-up care that in a hospital, they or someone they love might end up investigated and in jail. So that's that's what keeps us going, is knowing we've got three months to figure out how to make that happen. Thank you both well, for sharing. Well, we thank you for the yeah. work that you're doing. But I'd like to ask the two of you, it has been one after the other stories of what I would call, you know, only by the nearest of misses did women not die after experiencing a spontaneous miscarriage in the states where abortion is now illegal. I've been hearing about ectopic pregnancies uh, that ruptured, you know, a a pregnancy that was never viable from the moment it implanted in that fallopian tube uh, and where the only treatment is surgical uh, to prevent death by hemorrhage. We've been hearing about people who had spontaneous abortion who had to wait and wait until the heartbeat was no longer heard. That is going to result in deaths. Women had absolutely nothing to do with experiencing a spontaneous miscarriage and yet may die because somebody withholds the necessary medical treatment due to a law now on the books in a state. Who's legally responsible for that death? 
Well, it is terrifying what is happening. And this is was never just about abortion, because when you try to regulate these things, then you're putting doctors and other healthcare providers, you're, you're essentially tying their hands. I just read a story about a woman in Louisiana who was 16 weeks pregnant and was forced to labor her dead fetus because the hospital doctor's lawyers said that it would be an abortion under Louisiana law and they could be charged with a crime. That should never happen here. And yet story after story is just painting this picture of this really horrifying reality that we're in where ectopic pregnancies, as you said, Margaret, which are never, ever viable, are not being treated right away, where obstetric emergencies are, are getting drawn out to the point of, of near death. Because of the way these laws are written, doctors don't know how much does a patient have to bleed out before I can provide her care. And so what I do know is that these are devastating, devastating implications. And literally, probably at this moment, there is a doctor somewhere not sure whether they can provide the best care for their patient. It's unconscionable. Amanda, let's just stay with you for a moment. The Lorien Project has a number of active cases it's involved in. If you can give our listeners a general sense of the issues at stake here. I'll first note that um, we did have a huge victory in one of our cases in Minnesota. About a week ago, a judge struck down almost every single abortion restriction on the books in Minnesota as unconstitutional under the Minnesota Constitution's uh, protections of privacy. That judge struck down a 24-hour waiting period, a requirement that doctors give patients a lecture that the state has written, a law that requires an adolescent patient to notify both their parents before they can get an abortion. Um, and so that victory is really going to make a big difference because Minnesota, as you know, is right there in the middle of the country where its neighboring states are about to ban abortion if they haven't already. And it's going to become a major access point for, for people, not just in the Midwest, but some clinics in Minnesota are seeing one third of their patients from Texas right now. Um, part of our strategy moving forward is to make sure that access is as unencumbered in states like Minnesota as possible, because those are going to be the hub states. And we wanna make sure that people can get there and not have to deal with any of this um, state mandated waiting periods. We really want to clear the way for providers to be able to really increase their, their services to meet the, the demand. I know the American Medical Association has advised medical professionals not to report a patient for the loss of a pregnancy, which they say violates privacy laws and uh, medical ethics. And I wonder what advice is there for patients around how they can protect their own privacy? It does feel like there's a real risk to people being found out. How can women protect themselves well, I think one thing to know is that there is no reason to present at a hospital or an emergency room and say, you've had an abortion and you need medical attention. Um, because you never know if somebody that works at that hospital is going to be hostile to abortion and report you. Um, that is likely what happened in the case a few months ago in Texas, where a woman was charged with murder for her pregnancy outcome. It's most likely going to be somebody reporting a person who presents with a pregnancy loss of some sort. There is no medical difference between an abortion and a miscarriage. There is no blood test that can be run to see if you have taken medications that would cause an abortion. And so I think just in terms of people um, knowing what they have to disclose and what they don't have to disclose is, is fairly important. And then there's Google and other websites that are tracking people's movements. There's a, a movement for people to delete some of these period tracking apps from their phones and, and limit the amount of data that 
um, these tech companies can collect. And I think that's that's probably worth exploring. Yeah. And one of the things that we do definitely recommend is that you are if you are pregnant and ambivalent, it's often better just not to tell more people than you believe you can trust. Um, most people who are in some way, shape or form prosecuted over their pregnancy outcomes usually find that it's their texts or their emails that are looked at that become sources of information to try and prosecute somebody. So looking at when they do Google searches, if they do Google searches, um, using private browsers for that, only texting people over Signal, which is encrypted and using disappearing messages is a useful tool. Um, it feels a lot of times like in the South, we don't have a lot of power when it comes to political things we can do. And one thing that I am excited about is that I believe that Alabama is going to be looking at introducing a piece of legislation that essentially says that the state will not investigate people who have poor pregnancy outcomes. And this is extraordinarily important, not just for people who will end up trying to self-manage their care, but also because, as I said, we don't have Medicaid out here. We don't have prenatal care. 50% of our pregnancies are unintended. That is a lot of unintended pregnancies that could potentially end up with unhealthy pregnancies and unhealthy people carrying them and potential miscarriages. So this is a type of legislation that could actually have some sort of legs in really red states like Alabama and Mississippi, even if it still fails, at least then there are lawmakers who are on the record saying, yes, I know when we passed these bans, we said we would never actually punish the person who was having the abortion. But look, now we had an opportunity to put that in writing and we chose not to. You know, I want to pull the thread a little on the sort of politics of this in terms of states. And wh what are you seeing in Alabama in terms of people rallying in support of the work that you're doing? And how do you see all this maybe playing out in the November elections? Uh, uh, Robin, also Amanda as well. Are we seeing any momentum? There's there's traction in terms of the types of candidates that are being put forward. I've been frankly astounded by how much reaction there has been in Alabama. Everybody has a national march day, but Alabama kept going. And in more and more cities, even just last weekend, there was another um, reproductive rights rally in Huntsville where there were some legislators who came and demanded that the governor have a special session to rescind the abortion ban. It obviously was not going to happen, but the fact that there's still all of these actions happening, there's rallies all the time. Time. And our issue in Alabama isn't about enthusiasm or about what people believe when it comes to reproductive rights and civil rights in general. I mean, this is the birthplace of the civil rights movement. Our issue is the way that our government is put together, the way that gerrymandering is done, not just on a state level. There is local gerrymandering in our city councils and in our counties. Like everything has been put together in order to assume that white Republican men stay in power. And so that is going to be a process that is going to take so long to undo. But there is a zeal for it now and that this has actually pushed people to realize that they have become unempowered, that they have lost any sort of real representation in their state and in their nation. And if we can start really moving how our districts are decided and divided, then we might have a shot going forward. Thank you, uh, Robin. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you for the taking uh, the time out of your very busy days mm -hmm. uh, as you uh, work through this historic time to talk with us. Uh, we will continue to follow your work. And to our listeners, 
You can learn more about conversations on healthcare and sign up for our updates at chcradio.com. Amanda and Robin, thank you again so much for all that you're doing and for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Of course, anytime. Thanks for having me. Thank you both. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? The Food and Drug Administration and numerous peer-reviewed academic studies have concluded that medication abortions are safe and effective and that serious adverse events for medication abortions are relatively rare. Recent research was conducted on women who receive abortion pills through the mail after a video conference with a clinician rather than in person from a medical clinic. That research didn't appear to show an increase in, quote, serious safety concerns. But South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, who opposes abortion, defended her state's ban on prescriptions via telemedicine appointments by calling medication abortions, quote, very dangerous medical procedures, end quote, and claiming a woman is five times more likely to end up in an emergency room if they're utilizing this kind of method for an abortion. Nome's press office said Nome meant to say four times more likely, and it cited research on emergency room visits by women with Medicaid coverage who got medication abortions. The governor isn't citing the study correctly, however. It found that women who got medication abortions were 53% more likely, not four times, to have a subsequent emergency room visit for an abortion-related reason than a woman who received a surgical abortion. But other researchers warn that the study only tracked ER visits, not whether those visits required medical intervention. One researcher noted that many people may visit emergency rooms because they don't have a primary care doctor, and this is particularly the case with Medicaid enrollees. Other research published in 2015 on women in the California Medicaid program tracked ER visits as well as diagnosis and treatment it found that major complications were relatively rare in both medication and surgical abortion. Medication abortions are done early in pregnancies and now account for more than half of abortions in the United States. In South Dakota, Nome signed into law the state's ban on medical abortion by telemedicine in March. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Of the 6.6 million births per year in this country, over half are unintended. And among teens, those rates are even higher. 
Colorado has been conducting an experiment for several years to examine what might happen if sexually active teens and poor women were offered the option of long-term birth control, such as IUDs or implants. What was so striking was the word of mouth amongst um, these young women to each other and the network of support that was built to access uh, this program through these clinics to help the tens of thousands of, of women over the course of the four to five years really did result in um, these significant decreases in unintended pregnancies and abortion. Dr. Larry Wolk, medical director of the Colorado Department of Health and Environment. The resultant decrease is 40% in both categories, pregnancy and abortion, to more than 50, even approaching 60% reduction in um, those unintended pregnancies and abortions. There was a significant economic benefit to the state as well. We've seen a significant decrease in the number of young moms and kids uh, applying for and, and needing public assistance. This will translate into better social and economic outcomes for these folks. And amongst young women 15 to 24, we've seen a decrease in sexually transmitted infections and the rates are now below the national averages. A free, long-term contraception program offered to at-risk teens and women trying to avoid the economic hardship of unplanned pregnancies, leading to a number of positive health and economic outcomes. Now that's a bright idea. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and CHCRadio.com.